Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Setad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Hendrik Krajmar. Hendrik is Associate Professor in the Comparative Politics of the Middle East and North Africa. He focuses a great deal on political regimes, institutions, state-society relations, electoral coalitions, party politics, gender, and much, much more. He's written extensively on a whole host of absolutely fascinating things. And I'm delighted to say that this is the very first Sepad pod that I have done in the flesh. So we're surrounded by a big pile of books and a smiling Hendrik. So Hendrik, thank you so much for joining us, letting us use your office and uh, being the first person to do this in the flesh. It's really great to do this. No, thank you very much, Simon, also uh, for um, for asking me to, to be on, on this podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm really, really looking forward to this. I've been reading your work for, for many a moon now and uh, yeah, really, really learned a lot from it. So I'm really delighted that we're able to sit down today and just talk through um, what it is that you're doing and, and why you're doing it. So as per usual, I must begin with the first question, which is what got you interested in, in the Middle East? Because you are German, I believe. So how did that interest uh, yeah. emerge? It's a bit of a, a detour, even like um, political sciences, because I actually wanted to study history, particularly mm-hmm. ancient history. I'm, I'm actually fascinated by Roman and Greek civilization, but in Germany um, at the time, and I think that still applies, you needed a so-called numerous clauses when you wanted to um, study certain subjects. And I just had, you know, my A-levels were just not good enough to do that. So I, I opted for politics um, as, a, uh, as a second option uh, and social anthropology. So I, I trained as a comparative political scientist mostly, mm-hmm. also leading up to my MA and then my PhD. And um, I joke with, uh, with, with my husband uh, about this question about, you know, why, why I'm, I became interested in the Middle East. I, I, initially, I was very fascinated by um, some kind of uh, by the landscape of the of 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 much of the Middle East, I'm, I love arid landscapes. I love the desert. But the physical uh, so landscape is almost a very sort of Orientalist kind of road into uh-huh. into the Middle East, if you wish. I I really love the food, I love the culture, I love the people. Um, but then also clearly, I've developed sort of a more academic interest in in the Middle East, particularly. Um, this question around non-democracy, non-democratic mm-hmm. regime, their sustainability, uh, and their survival, uh, and that's you know, you know, in, in the transition from MA to PhD, that's what I then started focusing on, and I worked on Egypt um, mm-hmm. uh, and on on party and electoral politics, and I've never left um, so much so that you know it's really questionable whether sort of I am still a proper comparative political scientist <laughs> and not now uh, more of an area specialist. Well, you are in an area studies department after all. That's correct, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So I, I've got to ask, when you, um, I, I have a slight issue with the thought that politics is a second-rate subject compared to history, <laughs> um, but when you were, when you were going into politics, of all the different disciplines and sub-disciplines that you could have gone into, what was it that, that really piqued your interest about about the Middle East? Because I imagine at that point you hadn't been to, to the region. I had. Um, I did actually study Arabic um, um, after my MA um, for a bit in Cairo. Um, but so sorry, I, I mean at the, during the undergraduate? No, phase. not during my undergraduate sure, okay. uh, at all. Although the political science department was uh, very near the, as at the time I think it was called, the Oriental Studies and Islamic Studies mm-hmm. department. So there was some interaction um, and it piqued my interest at the time. Um, but to be perfectly honest, right up until my master's degree, I hadn't really focused or hadn't really decided to focus on any specific region. You know, I could have ended up 
working on European politics, which, you know, interested me as well, because I, I did an internship at the European Parliament, and that was all very fascinating. Uh, I've always been a political animal as a, you know, as, a, as an adolescent, I, I loved, I loved politics. So for me, like, you know, then choosing a political trajectory wasn't, wasn't such a bad thing after all. But you're right. I mean, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly a point where I thought I would become a Middle East expert. And, you know, I wanted to focus on the region. But you know, I th the, the best I can say is that it was related to this idea of trying to understand, you know, why um, are the politics of the Middle East, why is the politics of the Middle East seen as so different, um, you know, within this kind of exceptionalist paradigm, which we, 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 we have unpacked and, you know, we're not, so, I don't subscribe to it in that mm -hmm. sense. But, um, but, you know, how do we understand the political dynamics and institutions that appear at surface um, value democratic within authoritarian settings, such as elections, such as political parties, such as civil society organizations. I guess that sort of was my entry into, into, into Middle East politics, I suppose. Got you. Okay. So then you did your, your, your master's degree and then you say you, you went to Cairo, you did some language training in Cairo. Yeah, I did. I did. I um, I studied at the ILI, and that was mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. I stayed with a Coptic Christian family in Heliopolis, and I took the 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 tram yeah. to the ILI. You know, and so I practiced my Arabic um, on the on on the tram. <laughs> Amazing. Know? And um and you know there was some really funny episodes where I had you know, uh, you know, uh, big Egyptian pound bills and you know clearly it was just uh, piastres that you had to pay and you know the, the whole tram helped me change the money you know <laughs> and all right. that kind of stuff. so it was a great experience and I, I, I just love Cairo I sure. think it's an amazing place so when was this if you don't mind me asking oh gosh this was in the late in the late 90s I have to admit so you know I, I started my PhD in 1999 right so it's it's quite it's quite a while back now so tell us about that PhD then Hendrik where where was it and, and what was it done? so it was at the LSE I did my master's at the LSE and then a PhD at the LSE as well um, and I was supervised by a, um, um, a party expert but mostly in European politics and um, Simon Hicks um, and I was looking at um, uh, party development and electoral reform in Egypt, particularly looking at the electoral reform of the early 1990s, the 1990 change from uh, PR, proportional representation, mm -hmm. to a candidacy-based um, two-round majoritarian system. And I wanted to understand how that electoral change, that institutional change affected the fortunes of opposition parties. And I guess at that point, this was quite sort of a, um, a risky undertaking, given the fact that, you know, certainly in the literature at the time, you know, party and electoral politics were sort of dismissed as not being relevant within authoritarian contexts. Um, but I, what I wanted to show is that, you know, even given the authoritarian constraints that are in place, Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that, you know, it's questionable to what extent opposition parties matter and how they matter and whether they matter in a way that is distinctive from, from, uh, from in Western democ democratic settings, that, the, that institution and institutional designs matter. And I think this comes down to the fact, and we've seen this, you know, across the region many times, that electoral engineering is actually quite an effective tool. Yeah. to manage and manipulate election outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, but in the, in the 1990s and early 2000s, when I embarked on this project, this was not necessarily really seen as, as um, uh, 
as an acceptable proposition. So what was the what was the, the literature saying then at this point that in authoritarian states elections don't matter because the, the ruler was was omnipotent? Yeah, well, or, you know, the, 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 it was tied to sort of the, this idea of um, uh, of uh, electoral manipulation. It was also tied to the idea that the electoral arena was actually not the arena, or the party, the parliamentary arena was not the arena where politics actually happened. So it was either seen as inconsequential, yeah. uh, or it was um, perceived um, um, as um, that the elections and results were so fraudulent that you can actually not necessarily make any valid claims. And there is something to it. I'm not, you know, saying that, you know, the fact that, you know, the um, New Wolf Party won uh, 8% uh, is a reflection of its actual electoral strength, you know, say in the in 1980s elections in 1984, 87. Um, but, you know, you know, if you look at, you know, the behavior of um, the political parties on the ground um, in, in comparing it to the 80s and 1990s, you see significant changes in their campaign strategies, um, um, uh, the way they um, uh, presented themselves uh, to the electorate. Um, a lot more in the 1980s, really, the parties shown through a lot more than clearly than in the 1990s, where they reverted back to a candidate-based system. So you had um, parties being assigned randomly and quite funnily, actually, these various different logos. And clearly, um, the NDP always ended up with a camel in the crescent. Even You know, they were at the top of this list, and it was apparently a first-come-first-serve system, but, you know, clearly the, the ruling National Democratic Party always got the, the <laughs> perceived as the best kind of symbol. And then uh, candidates, you know, who were sort of more um, down the line would be sort of the duck or a bucket or even like the sword or a pistol or a gun. Mm -hmm. So really sort of some more derogatory um, um, uh, symbols. But the, the parties in the 1980s were really quite... Um, clever in using these symbols a lot more. So I looked at various different other aspects, but just to give you an example of, you know, it's it's not only that uh, um, in the 80s party fortunes were uh, better under PR, although the, the electoral threshold was very high, it was still 8% nationally. Right. Um, but it also affected their behavior. And one other aspect in which it behaved, uh, affected their behavior it was in the formation of electoral alliances, which is quite a classic, you know, um, party political or opposition party political strategy under authoritarian constraints uh, where, you know, the threshold of entry is very high. Okay. And you see far less so than in the 1990s. Sure. So it's not only in terms of changes in terms of the fortunes when it comes to parliamentary representation, but also the way that these parties behaved, opposition parties behaved in response to um, certain electoral uh, law givens. So what was the what was the ability of these these parties to operate politically, either in the realm of, sort of parliamentary politics or more socially at this time? So that's that's a very interesting question. So. Um, often the the elections themselves um, um, were sort of golden moments of these political yeah. parties to shine, and they they faded into sort of more insignificance during the parliamentary term. Um, uh, and this was also often the time where the regimes, the regime, the Mubarak regime, that is, was more lenient in uh, in in accepting dissenting voices. But all of this happened clearly within the constraints of. Mubarak's authoritarian regime mm -hmm. uh, and the red lines that were set by the regime. Um, 
I did like I did um, uh, work at the AUC um, like a couple of years later uh, after my PhD. I did work at the AUC between 2005 and seven, and I, I was lucky enough to be able to take my level one students to Parliament in this period of time. Right. So the lower house of Parliament at that point, uh, and we were sitting at the, at the on the sort of visitor benches, and there were some really hefty debates going on you know, about budget, about the extension of the emergency legislation. So what I'm trying to say here is that even though, you know, opposition representation uh, never touched the NDP's two-thirds majority, because that was sort of constitutionally problematic in Egypt, yeah. um, the, the, the oppositional voice was always, uh, or has always been traditionally quite strong, particularly clearly from Ikhwani members, but also yeah. from the, the new Waft party, Hizbut Tagamu and, and, and others, you know. Fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. And you, you published, obviously, a number of different things pertaining to this, both in, in article form and in, in chapter form. So it's worth um, worth digging into that for people who want to know a bit more about, about Egypt in particular. But what I found really interesting about your work, Hendrik, is that you... You, you start with Egypt, of course, but then you, you move away and you start to look at other types of electoral politics and political parties. So then after Egypt, you go to Saudi. Yes. But, uh, well, uh, um, is, is that right? Yeah, straight that's to Saudi. Yeah, not straight to Saudi. Uh, first, we had a little detour to, well, it was a comparative piece that I wrote with um, uh, Francesco Cavatorta on electoral violence comparing Egypt and mm -hmm. Morocco, um, which is probably one of my dearest pieces. I think that there was a really, really great working relationship between, between Francesco and I, and, and this was just a really nice, it came together really, really, really well. And so where we looked at um, um, uh, state-sponsored electoral violence right. and comparing you know, the, the use of that in, in the Egyptian context um, as opposed to the Moroccan context where the regime has a very different understanding of what elections mean. Um, uh, both domestically, but also in terms of its international reputation, and where you know electoral violence is just not a feasible option to yeah. manipulate um, election outcomes. Um, but then, yeah, you're right. Then, then I moved on to Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, since also a little bit Kuwait um, and some of the other um, peninsula um, Arab Peninsula countries. Mm -hmm. Let, let's delve into uh, the Arab Peninsula countries if we can. Um, I want to talk about Kuwait in a little bit, but, but Saudi. Saudi is a fascinating place um, in terms, well, all manner of reasons it's fascinating. Oh, totally. I mean, I was lucky enough to, to visit the country um, mm -hmm. uh, on, on two occasions, uh, and they were all tied, you know, um, to um, having connections to the country. You know, a good friend of mine at the time was the um, uh, um, head of the uh, French consulate in Jeddah, which made it possible for me to go there. Yeah. And, and then uh, on another occasion, um, we had um, a colleague of mine and, uh, and I supervised one of the um, uh, King Abdullah's sons, uh, right. who supervised his PhD, and he invited us to the wedding. And then I afterwards extended this into a re field research visit, mm -hmm. um, because otherwise it's quite difficult to yeah, get into this country. Um, and I did uh, some fascinating research on mostly on election, electoral politics dynamics, clearly because you know it's the, these elections are nonpartisan. They are to this day very much under researched. Yeah. Uh, there's very little written on on electoral dynamics, uh, both at the municipal, but even more so on the on, uh, at the associational level. Um, Can I stop you there just one sure. second, Hendrik? Tell me about the, the the electoral landscape before we go into into a bit more detail. 
what elections are we talking about here and what elections actually take place in, in Saudi for people so, who don't know? So since uh, the early 2000s, um, progressively, the regime has allowed elections to take place, uh, often partial elections, but in some cases, full elections to governing boards of various associations. Uh, this could be the uh, the lawyer syndicate, the journalist syndicate, engineers, uh, the chambers of commerce, mm -hmm. um, um, football um, associations, youth clubs, um, um, and workers associations, sort of the, the nuclei, basically, of trade unions. Uh, um, and not only has that sort of um, evolved over time, but these were also the first associations where women got the you know, passive and then later on active voting rights. In fact, mm -hmm. the chambers of commerce were the, f the first really where, where, where this happened. And, and you know, I, I wanted to shine a bit of light on, you know, w women's enfranchisement uh, in, uh, in, in associational politics in Saudi Arabia with a focus on, on, on the chambers of commerce, which are sort of probably the most prominent um, uh, corporatist uh, um, uh, association, if you wish, um, that exists in Saudi Arabia. So that's one level. That's, so that's really at the associational societal level. And then the next level up, if you wish, um, is munis uh, the municipalities. Um, and again, the elections there were introduced in 2005, and then you had a... Um, uh, uh, elections in 2010, I believe, and then you know they, the the next set of elections was much later. Um, but there have been th two, to, uh, three to four rounds of elections now, um, and again there has been seen there has been significant change from uh, all male um, elections to the enfranchisement of women, but also the expansion of the proportion of um, seats in municipal councils that are elected directly from uh, half to, it is now, I believe, two-thirds. So there is some change. Yeah. Um, clearly, these uh, elections, both on uh, associational um, and municipal level, and in keeping with sort of the ethos, if you wish, of uh, the Saudi politics are nonpartisan. Yeah. But what I wanted to show, particularly in, my, in, in one of my pieces on Saudi municipal elections, that Again, and this ties back to what I've done in my PhD, that um, that electoral rules shape um, candidate behavior. And in fact, you know, um, uh, I was um, uh, seconded as um, a consultant through the LSE in 2004 to, uh, to a law firm that advised the Ministry of Rural and Municipal Affairs on the design of an electoral law. Mm -hmm. But I, I do not want to take any credit or discredit for the outcome, but sure. we just advised them. Um, and uh, and we were actually appalled by the kind of complex electoral rules that they introduced at, the, at that point. Um, uh, and um, and uh, we're not really happy and felt that this they, they were really going against sort of international norms of good practice at the time. But anyway, they introduced that kind of very odd, unusual electoral law. And it had, as a consequence, uh, counter to what they probably had hoped for, uh, led to a certain level of ideology, how do you say it, ideologization um, yeah. of the, um, of the, um, of the campaign. Right. Okay. Uh, so, particularly with the formation of these golden lists, um, which were sort of uh, lists of um, um, conservative, um, some may say Islamist, although I appreciate that's a contentious uh, term to use, but um, 
uh, uh, groupings on one side, and then the so-called liberals. Again, you know, a, 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 um, a, a difficult marker, but you know, for the lack of a better term, or, um, uh, uh, on the other side. So there, there was a, a, an ideologization uh, of the um, electoral um, sure. electoral campaign. So that was really interesting to to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating. It's really really interesting stuff and. Um, I, I learned a lot from reading your your work on Saudi and the sort of the Saudi electoral processes that are that are playing out. Yeah. Let's move to Kuwait. Yeah. Because I think that's that's where I first encountered your work. Oh, really? Okay. And I think that's where um, a lot of people who I talk with about you know you for your work on on Kuwait. Right. Okay, that's, Which is that's interesting. Fascinating, I think, because yeah. Kuwait is this really, really interesting case in the in the Gulf, often overlooked, yet becoming increasingly um, prominent in academic circles for all manner of reasons, I yeah. guess. Yeah. But you, you've written extensively on all manner of things pertaining to, to Kuwaiti politics. So can you just tell us a little bit about where the, the Kuwaiti interest came from, please? Um, I... I think the Kuwaiti interest, uh, 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 so is is must be positioned in my wider interest in party politics okay. in the Middle East. And Kuwait, you know, sits somewhere between Saudi Arabia and some of the more plural polities in in the region, in the mm -hmm. sense that you have uh, the countries, you know, particularly North uh, Africa, which have a long history, certainly since the 1990s or late 1980s. Of partisan politics, and in the Moroccan case, you can even go back, you know, to the 1950s, clearly the post-independence era, where you know uh, it was quite active, and in Jordan as well. Yeah. But you know, sort of where political parties are on legal footing, um, and party pluralism exists, and then in Saudi context, but also in the Omani context, where you know the um, elections are fought on a non-partisan basis, and then you have the Kuwaiti case, where you have what I would class as proto-parties. These are, you know, party-like formations that are tolerated but not legalized. And I always wanted to understand, first of all, why, why this setup? And secondly, how does this shape and affect, you know, the, the dynamics of elections and um, parliamentary politics? So what does that actually mean? Because it's, it's, it's really interesting hearing you talk about this tolerated but not, not necessarily legalized. But what does that mean in practice for Kuwaiti politics and electoral politics? So it means quite a, a few things. Um, there's a lot more fluidity, and I'll come back to that in a second. But it's interesting to, to, to discuss this point from the perspective of the regime, but also from the perspective of these proto-parties. Yeah. Because from the perspective of the regime, I suppose, you know, one of the reasons why they have not been legalized, and there have been various attempts um, made, and, you know, some argue that constitutionally, actually, um, it, it is possible, you know, that the constitution is not prohibitive against, um, against the existence of fully-fledged political parties, and that the only thing that's needed is a party law. Right. Um, so, from the regime's perspective, clearly, um, they can see they can be viewed as it, it, it can be seen as more plural. You need to put this in the context, clearly, of what happened um, uh, in 1990, 1991, You know, and the you know the, 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 the after the liberation of Kuwait, uh, you know, the Kuwaiti politics, you know, um, became more plural. Although these proto parties, or some of them at least, existed prior. 
prior to the 1990s as well. But the regime, uh, it, it has a really, uh, it, you know, good um, option to sort of um, uh, rein in, uh, given that these these parties operate in, in the shadows of legality. Yeah, so that, that's, that's a wonderful phrase. Yeah, well, that's what they do, right? Yeah. I mean, they 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 operate in that shadow, and that gives the regime a lot more room to maneuver if if they feel they need to and to mm -hmm. manipulate. But I've also uh, spoken to um, um, quite a few um, proto-party representatives, and there is a general fear that uh, if partisan politics were to be legalized, you know, um, uh, certain groups would dominate the political scene far more than they do now. And that's because they have um, more organizational clout, they have more resources at their disposal, and the and the um, uh, and the, the the party or proto-party that um, uh, is, uh, is that they reference is the um, Muslim Brotherhood affiliate. Mm -hmm. yeah, clearly, and that's I mean that again, this is not unusual. You have that in the Egyptian context, you have sure. that in the Jordanian context. But this is one of the worries that was sort of um, uh, voiced with um, by by members, particularly of the so-called more uh, secular um, opposition. Right. Yeah. So it's not a it's, it's not that that push for. Uh, legislation and legalization is uniform. It's very much uh, promoted by um, um, uh, um, by the Islamist, uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood affiliate, um, um, but not necessarily by all. Right. Interesting. I think one of the things I find fascinating about Kuwait is that it's often held up as being this quote-unquote success story of, mm. of managing mm. um, sect-based tensions, if you will. Mm. You have this this political environment whereby you have uh, representatives from different uh, different tribal groupings, different yeah. sectarian communities, yeah. different class um, yeah. groupings. Obviously, large merchant community that all play out in the in the national assembly and have really interesting and vibrant political debate. But to what extent is that an accurate representation of Kuwaiti politics? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak to. To um, uh, um, in depth, I'd say to the sectarian dynamics and sure. politics of Kuwait, because that's not what I've sort of primarily yeah. studied. And also in comparison to how this plays out, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, I mean, I'm aware that you know the Kuwaitis themselves praise themselves of this kind of you know in cross sectarian, inter sectarian harmony. But you know, you know that's clearly a regime perspective. Yeah. But what I can say. And what I also pick up in, in, in my research is that the, the, the proto-parties that exist in Kuwaiti politics exist at the intersection of various different societal um, actors and groupings. And that if we want to understand electoral politics and then by extension party politics, we need to make sure that we sort of understand that complexity because there is in, there, are, there are various interactions. These, these, these proto-parties, they don't operate. First of all, they're not the primary um, uh, um, gatekeepers to parliament. 
you know, so they compete against a host of different players, like independent candidates, uh, you know, candidates uh, ad, um, advanced by certain diwaniya, mm -hmm. uh, ad, uh, candidates who are um, uh, um, advanced by specific tribes. We know that there are these informal um, tribal primaries that have happened and still happen, I suppose. Um, so it's a complex field. There's even um, societal uh, groups and associations that are involved in uh, in, in electoral politics. And not only that, but these proto-parties form alliances with tribes, with uh, different associations, um, and so forth. So the picture is actually quite complex mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to, to electoral politics. There's, you know, there, there are certain proto-parties who um, uh, decide not to nominate many candidates themselves, but then they s support uh, independents who they feel are close um, to um, uh, to their um, program, um, and that 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 happens both on the Shia and the Sunni side, mostly. But how this then plays out in Parliament, this is you know something that you know would be really interesting to to explore. And there's others who who who've done some really fascinating work on 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 you know the the not only the parliamentary arithmetic, but also the the, the parliamentary debates that happen. Sure. Sure, that's really, really fascinating stuff, and I, I must, um, I must give a, a shout out to your book with Paula, on oh, yeah. um, on on all of these types of questions, and also Islamism. Yes, um, you were about to reach for the book, I believe, were you? Uh, I was. Yeah, it's here. Um, Fantastic. And, um, yeah. This was a really, really great project, and I must again, you know, give credit to Francesco Cavatorta who secured a Gerda Henkel uh, funding mm -hmm. uh, for a much wider project. So they were they were not only um, um, Paula and I involved in this. Um, and this, in fact, was sort of a spin-off of the kind of research that we were able to do in Egypt because of that funding. Um, and we then decided to sort of um, uh, uh, um, put together um, an edited volume on the trajectories um, of uh, political Islam, Islamism post-spring, because we argued that, you know, some um, fundamental parameters had changed, not only that, but that we see um, uh, Islamism going in, in a very different direction. Um, and this is a this was a mammoth project, and I'm, I mean, to be honest, I'm pleased that this has come out, and it's, I, I guess, a quite, a, quite, a, quite a neat uh, volume. But it is. I, I would definitely I would, a neat I, volume. I would I would I would never again. I think this. I'm scarred by doing. Um, um, uh, um, uh, I'm uh, I'm doing these kind of um, edited volumes because it's just hard craft, um, and you know, you, you, you sort of soliciting <laughs> chapters, and we all know that, right? But uh, it was like just was it 22, 22 chapters or slightly thereabouts. So it's just it's it just is a mammoth. Uh, a mammoth text, but now we have it on the file. You saying that you will never again do an edited collection. No, <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean that is a, a wonderful book, Hendrik. It it really is um, fantastic, really rich, and uh, contains a, a huge amount of valuable insight. And uh, yeah, yeah, and um, and and I, I guess you know um, it, it really sort of hopefully contributed to some debates. And yeah. you know, and I, I've seen. Yes similar volumes come out since and I suppose um, you know they 
they they they feed into um, you know just exploring what has happened uh, with regards to Islamist politics or contentious politics more widely mm-hmm. um, post uh, post post spring. Hendrik, we've been talking for a long time, and there's so much more that we could discuss, and we've only got maybe two books through your big pile of books that I'm looking at right here. But I'm I'm conscious of time, and I'm conscious that. Uh, that we are reaching the end of our of our of our show, but I, I must ask one final question, if I may, and that's what's next for you? What are you What are you working on right now? Yeah, I'm I'm sort of super excited about two things. One is that I'm branching out um, to look at um, queer politics uh, in how shall I say the geographic Middle East. Um, I'm working on a project with. What does that mean? Sorry. Well, uh, it, I'll I'll explain because um, uh, so it's it's a project on the. Um, Spanish uh, uh, enclaves in Thota and Melilla. Clearly, mm-hmm. they're both, you know, on Moroccan soil, and there is, um, and we we we're looking into the colonial legacy and the co- the colonial aspect of this of this. But the the the, the focus is on the uh, local queer communities there, um, uh, and how um, how the confluence of a European North African Moroccan cultures, and you know the fact that these are frontier uh, towns or cities, yeah. affect you know identity formation, activism, and so forth. That's one project. Fantastic. And I am so we sorry who is we. So this is um, a project that I uh, that I'm involved in with um, uh, Andrew Delatola, who is you know a lecturer in Middle East mm-hmm. uh, politics here, also uh, at Leeds, um, and a colleague um, um, uh, across in Spanish, um, Portuguese, and Latin American studies. Um, um, who um, is also involved in he's a, hist- uh, a professor of um, Hispanic uh, studies. Amazing. Sounds fascinating. Richard Clemenson. And yeah, so the three of us, we, we actually visited the enclave uh, twice and uh, doing this. So it's, it's a bit of a completely different trajectory of what I have done so far, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited and I'm personally very passionate about that sure. topic. And the other project that sort of is more of a continuation of what I've been doing is to look into um, uh, aspects of coalition politics in the Middle East. And Amazing. that excite, excites me. And I'm doing that with um, um, Francesco Cavatorta uh, and with um, Valeria Resta, who's sort mm-hmm. of this upcoming star on party politics in the Middle East. And we've just submitted a book proposal on uh, multi-party politics and coalition governments in the Middle East. Amazing. Yeah. That's very, very exciting. Well, I look forward to, to seeing how both of those develop in the, in the coming months and years and to uh, continuing these conversations in due course. But Hendrik, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted we could do this and that we could do it in the flesh in your wonderful office. So thank you so much. No, thank you.